You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but his blood. And all precious is the flow. And we just give you glory for that. Lord, we thank you that in this praise and this worship, that Lord, we have uh, we have just bathed in your presence and your grace and your love, your mercy, your goodness. No wonder the Jews would sing and cry out, His mercy endureth forever. Wow, we need to hear that. So Lord, we thank you and we give you glory. And we pray, dear Lord, now that our hearts have been made ready for your word. And we'll just give you the glory for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 35. I've titled the message today, What's on Your Roof? What's on your roof? R-O-O-F. And I want to share an illustration with you, and I'm going I'm to share half of it. And then I'm going to share the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, at the end of the message. So you're going to have to stay with me. Michael Murray, and I'm just going to read this. Michael Murray decided to visit his wife who was a nurse at a hospital. It was Mother's Day, and he was going with their two children to surprise her with a gold necklace that read number one mom and a single rose. After they had had a pleasant visit, he went to the car, parked in an indoor garage there at the hospital, He sent Matthew, his two-month-old, who was in an infant carrier on top of the roof. He then reached in, strapped his 20-month-old sister in her car seat. He got in and began to drive away. When he was asked how he could have forgotten the child on top of his roof, he admitted that the garage was dark, and as he exited the garage, traffic was heavy. No one beeped. He drove through Worcester began to increase speed, accelerated onto Interstate 290, when all of a sudden he heard the sound of something scraping the top of the car. A sick feeling came over him as he turned to see the space empty in his car and he looked in his rearview mirror to see the infant carrier and his son sliding down the interstate. Alicia, you're about to have a baby right now, another one, aren't you? Deidre, this will probably throw you into labor before this is over with. You're going to hear the rest of this story at the end of the message. Last week, we looked at uh, this man by the name of Jacob, and we're getting ready to close the chapter on Jacob's life. Jacob has been reconciled to his brother Esau, and yet he's still not an honest man. There's still the old man, a little bit of Jacob. He eventually, instead of following what he told his brother Esau, he goes to a place called Shechem and he camps outside the city of Shechem. Now Shechem is a Canaanite pagan city. It would be just about like our modern day New Orleans or Las Vegas. 
And we talked last week about this, that the danger in your life and in my life is when we camp too close to the world, when we camp too close to the ungodly, when we live our lives on the edge of disobedience. In other words, a lot of us, we think, how close can I get to sin without committing it? Right? So Jacob was right there on the outskirts, the suburbs of Shechem. Now there was a principle last week. We said that soon if we camp too close, if we live on the edge of disobedience and sin, then we will begin to compromise our convictions because what happens is, is that sin now begins to affect our lives. It begins to taint us. It begins to infiltrate us. And before long, we begin to gray the lines. Do you know what I mean by graying the lines? And so Jacob camped too close to the enemy. Jacob began to compromise his convictions. And we said this, that our enemy, the devil, goes about like a roaring what? Lying. Now he's not the lion. There's only one lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But you see, he will masquerade as an angel of light. So our enemy goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. Now who does he go after? We said this last week. He goes after the young. He goes after the weak. He goes after the injured. So our enemy, the devil, men, listen to me closely. He may not be able to get you, but he's going after somebody in your family. And if you've got young children, he's got a bullseye on every one of them's head. So here's that enemy. Now, last week we saw a 14, 15-year-old daughter, a girl by the name of Dinah, who is raped by Shechem. And after she's raped, if you remember in Genesis 34, now look this way. God is never mentioned in the 34th chapter of Genesis. That'll tell you a lot. And Genesis chapter 34 is not mentioned. Genesis chapter 34 verse 5, it said that when Jacob learned of the rape of his daughter Dinah, 14, 15 year old Dinah, the Bible said that he did what? He kept quiet. And we went on to make this statement that dad's lack, Jacob's lack of an immediate reaction set the stage for the reaction of his sons, Simeon and Levi. You remember what they do? They get angry. They talk these men into being circumcised, these pagans, because these pagans want to intermarry. They want to be a part of the Israelites. So Simeon and Levi said, well, I tell you what, the only way we can do that, the only way Shechem can have our daughter, uh, have our sister Dinah, and the only way we can do that is for you men to be circumcised. They circum These men agreed they were circumcised, and three days later, you remember, Simeon and Levi went in and wiped the, all the male population out. And in verse 30 and 31... You remember Jacob in verse 30, he said, you sons have made me a stench in the nostrils of these people. And we basically said this, Jacob was sitting there saying like some of us say, well, I've got to live here. I've got to make a living. I've got to live in this community. I've got to work this job. And in verse 31, Simeon and Levi looked at him and said, dad, what happened to you? What happened to your passion? You see, when you and I live on the edge, when we camp too close to the enemy, when we're living on the edge of disobedience, when we're always trying to grade the line here, we begin to compromise our convictions. And men, listen to me closely. Men, I'm talking to you. You will cower in a crisis. And that's what happened to Jacob. 
Now I want to take that and take it a little bit farther because I want to expand on that point, cowering in a crisis. Because Jacob, in essence, chapter 34, look at it, chapter 34, verse 5, he kept quiet in a crisis. He was camping too close to the enemy. He had compromised too many convictions. And the result of that was that he cowered in a crisis. Now, I want you to take your Bible and, and take a right. And I want you to go to Judges chapter 16. Because you may be here today and you say, you say, well, you know, how does that happen? How did that happen to Jacob? And can that happen to me? Well, in, 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 uh, in Judges... Judges chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Are you there yet? Judges 16, verse 17 through 20. We see a man by the name of Samson. You remember Samson? This powerful man, this Nazarite. This was a man, listen, this was a man's man. He was an NFL all-star. He was a NCAA. He was everything. He was a Nazarite. Now what that meant was this. When his mother gave him birth, he was to be set apart as a Nazarite. There's that word holy, isn't it? Listen, there wasn't to be no wine in his, in his drink. He wasn't, listen, he wasn't even to eat a raisin or a grape. He wasn't to touch anything dead. He was to stay away from anything dead. And he was not to have his hair, what? Ever cut. But you, you know the story of Samson. What Samson began to do is Samson began to, he began to compromise his, compromise his Nazarite vow. Listen, before long we find him in a vineyard. He's not even supposed to be around wine. He's not supposed to eat a grape. He's not supposed to be around a raisin. But listen, we find him in a vineyard. And you remember there came a point that he killed what? He killed a lion. And he came back to that lion, and that lion, had its carcass had turned into a place by which the bees now had set up nests, and they had a bunch of honey. And what did old Samson do? He just reached in that old dead lion carcass, and he got him a sweet taste of the honey. And God also had sexual guidelines to the Nazarite. But man, oh, listen, he, was at, he knew where every whorehouse was. That's the kind of life that uh, Samson was. You know what Samson was doing? He was, tamping, he was camping too close. He was living on the edge of disobedience. And before long, he compromised his convictions. And in the end, he's right in the middle of it. Well, listen to chapter 16, Judges 16, 17 through 20. You remember Delilah? <laughs> oh, please, Samson. Won't you tell me the key to your strength? Well, if you weave my hair in a weaver's loom. Now, my, my, listen, if I woke up, my hair was woven, which I don't have enough to weave into nothing. But if it was woven into a uh, weaver's loom, I would, believe, I would believe that I was in trouble and this woman had something bad to do to me. But you remember he repeatedly lied to her and finally she said, you, you just made a, you've made a mockery of me, Samson. You've not told me the key to your strength. And Samson, you remember, he's got his, ha his head in the lap of Delilah. 
And so he finally, he just finally confesses and he tells her everything. Now let's pick up at verse 17. So he told her everything. No razor had ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines, that's the enemy of Samson, returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Every man stand to your feet. Every man and boy, stand to your feet. That means every one of you. Alex, get on your feet. Men, listen to verse 20. Because this word is to all of us. In verse 20, it says, Then she called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and he thought, Do you see it? I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Men, that ought to churn in our hearts the danger of you and I in a crisis and we no longer have the presence and the power of God over our lives. You can be seated. How did it happen? And how does it happen? It happens, listen men, it can happen just as easily to you and I. When you and I, ladies, when you and I, young person, when you and I, listen, when we grieve the Holy Spirit and we quench the Holy Spirit repeatedly over and over and over again. Because let me look this way. When you and I get camping close to the enemy, when we're living on the edge of disobedience, it's like all hell begins to take place in the heart. I mean, it's like red flags. It's like alarms going off and everything is saying, move back, move back, move back, move back, keep moving back. You see, the enemy just wants to get you close. When you and I repeatedly quench and grieve the Holy Spirit like Samson He toyed with sin. He played with it. He coddled it in his life. And before long, we get into a crisis. We've trampled the blood of Jesus Christ. We've quenched his Holy Spirit, which means we put out the word quench in the Greek. means to throw a wet blanket over a fire. We have quenched the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I baptize you with fire, Jesus said. We quench... And we grieve, we cause God to weep. And in that moment, we become useless in a crisis. Turn to, take another right and go to 1 Corinthians just real quickly. I know we've got to move quickly, but I want you to see this. In 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Men, I'm especially talking to you today. But I'm talking to all of you. Ladies, listen closely because it's true. 
And if you're a single mom, listen closely. A man or a woman who truly lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the greatest thing they fear is what Paul's getting ready to share right here. Are you there? 1 Corinthians 9. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into what kind of training? Strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now watch what Paul says here. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Now watch this. Men, are you looking? Say amen. In verse 27, he says, No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? Disqualified for the prize. Wow. Listen to what John MacArthur said about this verse. MacArthur said, Many believers start the Christian life with enthusiasm and devotion. They train carefully for a while, but soon they tire of the effort and they begin to break training. Before long, they are disqualified from being an effective witness for Christ. They do not have what it takes because they're unwilling to pay the price. The flesh, the world, everyday affairs, personal interest, and often simple laziness hinder spiritual growth and preparation for service. Look this way. Samson could not control his flesh. His flesh controlled him. You know what Paul said? Paul said, listen, I refuse to allow my flesh, my desires, those appetites within me to control me, I'll control them. By the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that I am not quenching and I am not grieving. If you quench and grieve the Holy Spirit, you will never be able to say what Paul said. You can't do it. Samson could not control the flesh. His flesh controlled him. Paul uses the strongest language here. He admitted his own battle. Paul said, listen, it's a battle. Listen, here's the great apostle Paul saying, listen, men, listen to me. I battle just like any other man. And when he says, when he says those words there, he words that so neat. He says, I, I beat my body and make it my slave. Who's controlling the body of Paul? Is lust? Is the flesh, is, the, is his desires, is his appetite controlling his flesh? No, Paul said, I brought him under the submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Samson was controlled by his flesh. Paul said, I will not be. And he uses the word there, beat, in the Greek. It's, it's, a, it's only used one other time. It's in Luke 18, 6. Where the woman comes, you remember Jesus tells this story about this woman. She's just badgering the judge, wanting justice. And the judge finally says, he says, lest this woman weary me. And that word weary me means, look this way, it means to give a black eye. Now you may say, what, you mean she was going to hit him? No. 
What it means, do you ever see people that literally, they, 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 they're just battling so much. You can see those, it just looks like I got a black eye. Ron, Dr. Ron Herod, pastor of First Baptist Church, Kenner. Kenner led the state of Louisiana probably 12 years in baptisms in the whole state. But that man never went to the pulpit that he did not have dark circles around his eyes. Paul said, I black my eyes in order to bring this flesh under. No, I beat my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will be, I myself will not be disqualified. And that word, dog-ear that page. Brian, double dog-ear that page in your Bible. Circle that word disqualified, because look this way. You know what that means? That means in God's house that what can happen is you and I can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can camp too close. We can live on the edge of disobedience. We can walk around wondering, well, I wonder if this is sin. I wonder if that's sin. Is it all right to listen to this? Watch this. We just sit there. We're living on the edge. We want to know how close we can get. We quench. We grieve. And the Bible says there comes a day. Paul said this. Paul said, you know what I fear? Let me tell you what I fear. You know what I fear? If you ask my wife and you said, Sheila, what does Brother Jeff fear? He fears this, to lose the presence of God on his life. That's what I fear. You know what Paul was saying? Disqualified means I'm a brick brack on a whatnot shelf. You know what some of you may be right now? You are nothing but a brick brack in the house of God. You are just gathering dust. You're of no use whatsoever because you've grieved and quenched the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit just says, set them aside. And you know what Paul says? God, take me before you'd set me aside. You see, this is what happened to Jacob. Jacob was dangerously close to God simply saying, Jacob, I'm going to set you aside. I cannot use you in the Abrahamic covenant the way you look right now. And in Genesis 35, watch this. Are you there? In Genesis chapter 35, watch this. We don't find God nowhere in chapter 34. And then we get to chapter 35, verse 1. Who immediately do we find? Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, purify yourselves, change your clothes, then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Second point. A crisis in which he cowered, called for divine communion. Did you hear that? God is waiting. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like God is, you know, it's almost as if you come through chapter 34. Here's everything. He's, he's living near the Shechemites. He's, his daughter's been raped. His sons are accused of murder. His whole family is collapsing around him. And let me tell you, folks, look at this. Because this is what God's doing.
Let me tell you what God will do. God will allow you and I to live. Listen, He will allow you and I to pull the full weight of our sin and our rebellion. He'll watch us walk through the darkest times. But He's waiting. And He's saying, He's just like the prodigal son's dad, the father of the prodigal son. He's looking and He's waiting. And all of a sudden, here comes Jacob. Here's Jacob. Oh, God. God. God, my 14, my 15-year-old daughter is raped. My sons are murderers. God, they've made me a stench in this place. Oh, God. Here's God. Now we can work. Jacob needed a divine communion. And listen to what God tells him because God tells you and I the same thing. Real quick and then we'll close in a moment. You can't leave because you've got to find out the rest of the illustration. Look what God tells him in chapter 35 verse 1. Look at him. He tells Jacob, he says, Jacob, go up. Going up requires effort, energy. There's a cost to going up. What did we say? Do you remember that Hebrew word violated? It said that Dinah, it was a nice sweet word for rape, violated. But you remember what it means in the Hebrew? What does it mean? It means to pull down. And we said, this is what our enemy wants us to do. Now let me tell you, watch this. And if you're listening on the website, we have people that are listening on the website. When I'm going down these stairs, boy, it's easy. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I can, I can just kind of skip some stairs. and Man, it's so easy to come back down, but my friend, it is hard to keep going up. You see, God tells Jacob, he says, Jacob, it's time to go up. And it's going to require effort and energy, and it's going to cost you something. You remember Jonah went down, down, down. And you say, up where? Bethel. And I'm, I don't have time to get there because I'm going to move on. But in Genesis 28, you put a note out there. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 19, you remember when he was on his way to Uncle Laban's home. Do you remember? He saw a ladder. And he saw a ladder going up to heaven. That's going up. He saw a ladder going up toward heaven and he saw the messengers, angels, up and down the ladder, up and down the ladder. And the Bible said that he built an altar there. He put a stone there where he had laid his head. And the Bible says in chapter 28, he said, my God was in this place and I knew it not. God tells him, listen, Jacob, I want you to go back to Bethel. Now listen closely, mom, dad, young person. Do you have a place or a moment which you would consider to be a spiritual reference point. First of all, you have one for salvation. Are you saved? Can you look back over your life and see a moment in your life when you came under the repentance and under the conviction of sin and you repented and you asked Christ to come into your heart and you followed in believer's baptism? Are you saved? 
That's a spiritual altar, a reference point that you go back to. But there's also that of absolute surrender. I told you a few weeks ago about Doug when he said he, in Nairobi, Kenya, there in Kenya, when he got down on his knees while a friend of his was preaching, he dropped down on his knees and he said, I begin to weep and to cry and to say, God, here I am and I'm ready to go and do whatever you want me to do. And Doug said when he got up, he said there was a pool of tears up under him where he had prayed that prayer. He said when he went back there, he went back with Sandy and he said there were two pools of tears. Let me ask you something. Is there a spiritual reference point to where you looked at God and said, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Go wherever you want me to go. Say whatever you want me to say. God, you are Lord. And I'm, I'm here just like Jim Henry, First Baptist Orlando pastor who said he got up every morning and looked up toward the heavens and he'd say, Private First Class, Jim Henry reporting for duty, sir. He told him to go up. Secondly, he said, settle down. He said, go up to Bethel. Settle there. Don't take up. Don't just visit. He said, listen, build an altar and stay there with God. I'm afraid. I wrote this down. I'm, I'm afraid sometimes we visit our Bible prayer in church and we reside in the world. You remember what the Bible said about Abraham? It said this. He pitched his tent and he did what? He built an altar. Let me tell you what happens to most of us. We pitch an altar and we build a tent. Is that not true? We live our lives as if we're going to live here forever. Listen, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Heaven beckons me from, or the angels beckon me from heaven's open doors. My friend is your residence and your life here, or are you looking somewhere else? God says, I want you to go up, I want you to go back to Bethel, and I want you to settle down and live your life in my presence, in my power, in my provisions, in my purpose, in my plan for your life. And quit running from me. Thirdly, watch what happens here. This is natural. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourself, change your clothes. You know what he says? Listen, you've got, you're going, we're going to go up. We're going to settle down. But we've got to put away. We've got to put away some foreign gods. Laban's gods. You remember what Rachel did? He, she stole her father's, father's gods, hid them up under a saddle. You remember that? Shechem, it may have been in the pillage of Shechem they had gods. The danger in our lives is that we begin to accumulate the stuff of the world. I wrote this question down. What have you accumulated of the world? Now listen to this closely. What have you accumulated of the world that God is telling you right now to rid yourself and your home of? Second question. Has it been a while since you felt His presence and His power in your life? Since He revealed Himself? Is it time to go back to that spiritual moment of salvation in that moment of surrender, is it time in your life to go back to Bethel and to say, once again, God, here I am. Let me ask you something. Is your, Beth, is your Bethel unclear or non-existent? You try to look back and you say, well, I don't really know where I got saved. My friend, you've got a problem. Now you may say, well, I, I know that I was saved. I know, listen, I love what Erwin Lutzer said. 
Erwin Lutzer said, I can't tell you the exact time the sun rose this morning, but I can feel the light in the presence, and I know the sun's shining now. I'm not causing you to doubt your salvation, but I am saying this. You couldn't, if I looked at a pilot getting ready to get on a commercial jet and said, is this plane going to Atlanta? And the pilot looked at me and smiled and laughed and said, well, I, well, I hope so. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn around and go the opposite direction. I don't need a pilot that's going to hopefully get me to Atlanta. Some of you in this room, literally you are gambling with eternity because there's not a clear Bethel experience. You're not saved or you're not sure. Listen, you think, well, you know, let me tell you what, you know what Adrian Rogers did? Adrian Rogers was so, he was so convicted about this that, that uh, he said that he went to a ball field. He said he stood in a ball field, a football field one night, and he said, I think so, I hope so. And he said he nailed down the tent peg that night and settled it once, for, once and for all. The great L.A. crusade, Billy Graham said he was on his way to the L.A. crusade, stopped off on a lonely desert road, got out on that lonely desert road and lifted his hands and settled some things in his life. Your pastor in his second church got on his knees in his own office and said, Lord, I've got to settle this. And no, Bob Smith, blind Bob Smith, that is preached here. Bob Smith said, I had to settle it. Your pastor, pastor's wife settled it. Is it settled in your life? God told Jacob, he said, Jacob, go up, settle down, put away some things out of your life. What do you and I need to get rid of right now that does not edify and exalt Christ? Did you hear that? The Bible says purify yourself. That's strange. I thought the Holy Spirit did that. I thought hagiosmos in the Greek, sanctification. I thought that was God's responsibility. But let me tell you something. God will never do for you what you can do for yourself. Listen to James 4, 8. Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Paul here, I mean, James says here to the persecuted church, he said, listen, it is your responsibility. Purify yourself. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he told Timothy, he said, purify, purge yourself. Paul to the church at Corinthians, at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5.7, purge the old leaven. That was the picture of a Jew literally going through their home, led by the father, and they were removing any resemblance of leaven in the home, in, the, in, their, in, their, in their home. And listen, because leaven was a picture of sin. If I purify myself, then it may mean this. I may, if I'm going to go up, if I'm going to go back to Bethel, if I'm going to recommit, resurrender, turn my life, reaffirm the covenant promises of God in my life, then if God's calling me to do that, there are some things that are my responsibility. What is in your life right now that you need to go home and you need to take care of? Nothing! Well, my friend, you may not be where you need to be. I, I let, listen to some closing comments. This is it. I want you to see verse 5. Verse 3, 
then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings in their ears. Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Verse 5, do you see this? Are you there? Then they set out and watch this. Do you see this? And the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. I wrote the problem. The problem is some are trying to go up to Bethel without purging and purifying and getting rid of some things. Verse 5, whose terror is this? Jacob is living in fear. Jacob's afraid of the neighboring countries. Now Jacob has been cleansed. Now Jacob has been to Bethel. He's going up clean and pure. He's put some things right. He's purified himself. He's gotten rid of some things out of his home and out of his life and among his family. And now he's literally going through enemy territory and the enemy is frightened. We can't go out from this community, from this church into this community without doing this. Verse 10, God affirms his covenant, his call. And, and man, that's a great thing. We'll go, I've got to close, but God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. There's a reaffirming. Now Jacob is back where he needs to be. He's like a man that's gotten on the wrong side of the interstate, gotten on the wrong road. Now he's back on the right road and he's celebrating He's back where he needs to be. And now he begins to experience the provisions of God. Now he's right with God. But I want to listen. I want you to hear a principle. And you can go back and read this on your own. Obedience does not exempt the man of God from sorrow, from pain, from suffering in a fallen world. Listen to what one writer said, because God was drawing Jacob back because of the suffering and the loss he was about to experience. He went through the last crisis without God. God projected ahead. God knew what was coming. Rebecca would die. Rachel would die. Isaac would die. He would have three deaths. Just like that. Three deaths. His whole world would be shaken. And God literally was saying, Jacob, you can't go through the crisis that are coming. Without me, you'll need me, Jacob. I'm going to tell you, folks, you listen closely. You never know one phone call, one doctor's report, one bit of information can shatter and change your world forever and immediately can take you from being a person who is arrogant, who has this attitude. You quench, you grieve the Holy Spirit, you're living life for yourself, all of a sudden to be dropped to your knees, clinging to Christ and saying, oh God, help me to get through this. Listen to that quote again. Perhaps God was drawing him back because of the suffering and loss he was about to experience. You went through the last crisis, Genesis 34, without me. God was saying, Jacob, you cannot do that this time. The crisis will be too great and it will break you. Let me ask you something. Is God preparing you? Is God telling you right now to get your life in order, get my life in order, to go up, to settle down at our Bethel, that place of surrender and get rid of all the unchrist-like stuff in our lives and say, God, here I am and I'm sold out. Is God getting you ready because there may be a crisis on the horizon? Sheila and I, when we were appointed, Keith Parts, the president of the International Mission Board, looked at us. There's about 180 of us. We shared our testimony there in Virginia at a church. 
He said, in this group here, he said, statistically, averages are. He said, some of you will lose a parent. She lost her dad in the first term. He said, some of you will lose a child, a couple, a missionary couple in in Zimbabwe had lost their only nine-year-old son on a bicycle accident in months after getting to the field. He said, some of you will lose a spouse. My best friend, one of my best, best friends, Jim Johnsonius, Jan, Jan Johnsonius, they were ki- he was killed in an accident their first year on the field. And I'll never forget what Keith Park said. He said, you're wondering, as I'm telling you this, you sure are being negative. That's bad news. And how could I survive the death of a parent and me not be there by, our, by their side? How could I possibly survive the death of a child or my spouse? And I'll never forget what Keith Park said. He said to 180 men that were going to risk their lives and go all over the world. He said, you remember these words. My grace is sufficient for thee. He said, let me tell you how you'll survive it. In that moment, God will give you the grace you need to survive that storm. One writer said, perhaps God was preparing Jacob, drawing him back into an intimate fellowship because the dark clouds of suffering were gathering. A storm was approaching. He could not cower in this crisis. He couldn't wake up like Samson, lifting his head up off the world's lap and rest and rest on the spirit that he had quenched and grieved. The limping Jacob, broken by God himself, must lean on the good shepherd. Well, the infant carrier slid off the top of the car. He said the screeching sound of metal caused him to just be sick. He turned the baby, the little two-month-old baby was not where he was supposed to be. He looked in the rearview mirror only to see an infant carrier had slid off and was going down a busy interstate at noontime traffic. James Booth, a 67-year-old retired antique dealer, stated, I was coming down I-290 south about noon. I saw something in the air. I thought it was garbage, something somebody had tossed out. Then I thought it was a doll. Then I saw the doll open its mouth. I couldn't believe it. It was a little baby. He turned his truck sideways on the interstate, blocking the highway and blocking traffic. He jumped out of his truck, scooped up the carrier and the baby. He continued... The little boy looked at me as if he were saying, Who are you? Michael Murray reached the father. Michael Murray reached Mr. Booth. He snatched up his son telling him, When the police show up, tell them I've gone to the hospital. He gets to the hospital. He just left and calls his wife to say, Get down here quick. Matthew is hurt. He's fallen. State Trooper Mario Tovar charged him with driving to endanger and the, new, and the news captioned, what a Mother's Day gift. And his question was when he grabbed the baby and ran, leaving the truck driver there, when he grabbed the baby and he ran to his vehicle to go to the hospital, he looked at the man and he said, oh my God, how will I explain this to my wife? You know, 
What will you and I tell God? That was negligence, oversight. Let me ask you to stand. Maybe you're here today and it's time to go back to Bethel. Maybe it's time to go back to the point you were saved. And let me say this. When you get saved, you get baptized. Not in the reverse order. Some people are baptized when they're a child, get saved, but they never get it in the right order. And my friend, that's an act of obedience. You need to get it in the right order. Some of you may be in this room. You say, you know, Brother Jeff, I look back over my life, but I I can't seem to find that moment. That, that moment when I, when I nailed it down. And, and maybe you need to do what Rogers and Billy Graham and many of these great men and women of God did. They put down, as Rogers said, a tent peg, a moment, and said, I've settled it and I know. I don't have to doubt anymore. That's what the enemy wants you to do. He'll keep you in doubt your whole life. You need to, you need to settle it. Is your salvation secure? Is your baptism in order? And where's your membership? Oh, I don't think that matters. <laughs> you better believe it does. You need to be involved in a church where you're going to experience worship that will affect your life and change you and where the Word of God will be preached. You need to plant your life in that church and you need to become an intricate part of that church. i tell you what's wrong with the city of Jackson. We've got too many spiritual renters. People who rent are not, most of the time, not concerned about their property. They don't care. And people who occasionally come to church and don't care about their church, my friend, they're just about like a renter. It really doesn't matter. So where is your membership? Question, are you a man or woman of God? Where do you live? Where do you go to school? And what are you doing to change the environment of where you live and where you go to school? Where you work? Are you in God's will, doing what God's called you to do? Are you abusing the temple of His Holy Spirit with addiction, strongholds, drugs, alcohol, diet, or whatever it may be? What are some things that you and I need to purify out of our life? And could this be the beginning of a new day? Could this be a Bethel? Could this be a Bethel? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, and Lord, we love you. We thank you, dear Lord, that even in the midst of Samson, that his hair began to grow back out. He began to see the error of his ways. He began to, he was a broken man now. But there came a day when a little boy led him into the enemy's territory, into the temple of the Philistines. The strength of God had begun to return to him. He was in the middle of a crisis, but in that crisis, he was now leaning and trusting Almighty God filled with his spirit. He cried out and said, Lord, just one more time. And Lord, the Bible tells us, the writer of Judges says, that Samson defeated more of the enemy, made a greater impact in his death, than he had in his entire life. God, we thank you that you're God of a second chance. And God, we give you glory for that. May we be like the Apostle Paul who says, Oh God, I never want to be a 
be disqualified. I never want to be a brick brack. I never want to be a figurine sitting in your house. I don't want to be covering, collecting dust, complaining and griping. I want to be on the front line for the kingdom that's advancing in enemy territory. God, the Bible says that in Hebrews that Jacob leaned against his staff as he blessed his sons and he prepared to die. May, dear Lord, we go back. May we go back to that Bethel. If we don't have a salvation experience, if we're not sure right now, may we pray and say, Lord Jesus, here I am. I'm a sinner, but I know that you love me and you died for me. I repent of my sin and I ask you to come into my heart and to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm ready to drown in that ocean of grace. Lord, for others in this room who say, I want to recommit, I want to rededicate, I want to go back to Bethel, I want to re-surrender, I want to reaffirm my covenant promises that I've made to God a long time ago to be obedient. May they do that. I pray, dear Lord, for men and women in this room, young people, that this would be a day of decision and the lives would never be the same. And we pray this. In-